you have your copies, we'll begin there today, Exodus chapter 1. Um, while you're finding your place, I want to uh, echo um, what Booney has said about our uh, praying on Wednesdays. Uh, I want to encourage, if you will, to to give attention to praying for uh, the women's ministry event. Um, we are um, we're grateful for those who are planning and those who are working through that. I want to encourage you to um, support them and encourage them and pray for them. Uh, but we want to begin praying now for those who will be there who uh, are not yet believers, for those who are unchurched. Uh, for those that you are inviting, that you're going to invite them and encourage them to be there and that you walk along with them through these days uh, as you lead up to that. Mentioning an invitation is not the same thing as really saying, will you come and go with me and, and I want you to be there. Uh, just mentioning it in passing is not enough. Uh, to get someone to come. Uh, people mention in passing things to us all the time and we take it as that, as a, a mention in passing. And we take it for that and that's the value that it has. But when someone stops and says, hey, I really want you to come, will you come? Uh, will you come and be with me? Uh, then, uh, then they see the level of commitment that you're making to them uh, and they'll want to be there. And I want to encourage you, if you will, ladies uh, and young ladies, if you would uh, be a part of that. And then also pray for uh, your one, as Booney mentioned. Um, and if you don't have that one yet, pray for the lost person. Uh, pray for us as we continue as a church. We didn't mention it last week, uh, just with everything going on and it being uh, New Year's Day. Uh, but this past December 30th, we completed our fourth year together. Uh, we are beginning, we're already now into our fifth year. Seems like yesterday. Um, but then there are times when it seems like it's been a lifetime and that we've always been together. And I just, just the way good things are. Uh, it, seems, it seems it's been quick and then it seems it's been a long time. So we're in our fifth year together. And, um, and I'm excited for the things that God's going to do and is doing uh, in us and through us. Uh, but just as we plan and look ahead uh, to where we'll meet, where we'll gather, uh, the place we'll call home, we have um, Tom and Mark and Alina working, uh, looking, and uh, let's pray for them and pray for our efforts as we continue to uh, to work toward those things. And then, and then if you will, uh, each Wednesday, pray for at least a family uh, here in the life of Oak Valley. And then just reach out to them and say, hey, I prayed for you. Uh, uh, I had received uh, that word this week and it was an encouragement. Uh, it was an encouragement to me just to hear that, hey, I prayed for you on Wednesday. Uh, I, I do want to remind you that... Um, this thing, and we just went through it in our confession, of believing. You know, Jesus said to the Jews who were believing, but then it was almost like they really weren't believing. Uh, I had an opportunity to have a conversation with a, uh, with a man that I've come to know uh, over the last few months, and I had a conversation with him uh, this week. He's actually out on the, 
uh, out on the fish route with, with Wes and uh, just uh, developed a relationship with him. And, and we were talking and we've shared uh, our, our kind of common backgrounds. But uh, uh, in the course of that, uh, in our conversation this past week, uh, he was asking about the church and I was telling him and, uh, and I asked him, I said, uh, uh, do you attend church? He said, no, but I, I believe. And, and, I, and I asked the question, uh, you say you believe based upon what? Uh, his grandmother had a lot of influence in his life. Uh, and I could hear from the way that he talked about her uh, that she was most likely a godly woman and had really impacted his life. Um, and, and her influence in him uh, has been a positive thing. And, uh, and I'm thinking that he thinks it's toward belief. Uh, he has an appreciation for God and appreciation for the things of God in, in respect to that. But I'm not sure that he's a believer. And I mention that to us because a lot of the people that we run into uh, will make mention of the fact uh, that they are believers. And, and I'm not saying that we should look at everyone with a jaundice eye and somehow or another question everybody's salvation. But you know the fact is, is that uh, all belief is not the same. And Jesus was marking that out whenever he was talking to the Jews, that all belief is not the same. And I want to encourage you to be sensitive enough and, and even to be lovingly bold enough that when we're talking with people who profess a belief, uh, love them enough to find out what it is they believe uh, and what that belief is, uh, what, what that belief is grounded in. Um, Today we'll begin a 12-week journey through Exodus. Uh, our initial thoughts may vary uh, regarding the length of time to give to, the, to, to 40 chapters. I was thinking about it. Uh, some may be thinking, what in the world are we going to look at for 12 weeks in Exodus? Uh, the title of the book says it all. They, were, they, they left out. They went out. Uh, what's some more to say? Uh, let's just watch the movie, The Ten Commandments, and we'll move on, you know. And that may be what some are thinking. Uh, or move on, but please don't go to Leviticus. <laughs> uh, others of you may be saying, my goodness, Exodus has 40 chapters. How in the world are we going to cover 40 chapters in 12 weeks? And then some, maybe even most, may just be indifferent to it all. Just 12 weeks is 12 weeks. But I, I hope that... Uh, as we work through this together that you'll be encouraged. You might be interested to know, though, uh, that the Hebrew title of this book uh, is not Exodus. Um, it is the first words of the book. These are the names of the sons of Israel. That was the title of the book. Um, and, uh, and I thought that was interesting when I was just doing some, doing some research. And that's true of about 10 or 12 other Old Testament books. That The Hebrew title are just the first few words of the book. Uh, it's, not what we, uh, it's not what we see. Um, but it does seem that the, the title here is to remind us that the Exodus, the Hebrew title, is just a continuation of Genesis. And why wouldn't it be? Moses is writing it. And I know there are people who doubt and even say Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible. And I say hogwash. 
he, uh, he wrote the first five books of the Bible. Uh, the Jews said he wrote the first five books of the Bible. Jesus referred to them as the books of Moses. Uh, and if Jesus said he wrote the first five books of the Bible, what in the world are we doing standing around questioning if he wrote the first five books of the Bible or not? Uh, but the fact is, is that uh, it is probably, and I think uh, has been said, and, and I believe that this is true, uh, probably the most significant theological piece uh, in the Old Testament, just in as we look at uh, the Exodus. Uh, when we were talking about the looking at 40 chapters, I just, we were talking about it. And we, sometimes I think when we read in Exodus, we're thinking about the whole 40 year period. But the fact is, is Exodus doesn't cover that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not trying to bore you with this, but it's just kind of interesting. There are three, there, there are three time periods that are dealt with in the book of Exodus. Uh, there is the looking back at the historical context. They're coming out of being in bondage for 430 years. Chapter 12 tells us that they were there for 430 years, which shouldn't surprise us. Uh, in fact, take your Bibles and turn over to Genesis chapter 15. Uh, it wasn't, this didn't just happen, but in Genesis chapter 15, uh, when God uh, cuts this covenant uh, with Abraham, this is what he tells him beginning in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Well, we're going to hear that that is exactly what takes place uh, in Exodus. But God had told Abram that this is exactly what would, uh, what, what would happen. So there is this 430-year time period. But then when we get to chapter 2, and we'll get there, we'll, we'll get there and deal with chapter 2 uh, next week and talk about Moses and begin to talk about the Deliverer. But when we get there, we realize that we're talking about a, a kind of an 80-year period. Uh, we know that Moses was born, he was 40 years old when he killed an Egyptian uh, and had to flee Egypt for fear of his own life. And he stayed gone for 40 years. So he was 40 when he left. He was 80 when he returned. So he was an 80-year-old uh, that was there trying to negotiate the release uh, of Israel with Pharaoh. So you have that kind of 80-year period or window uh, historically there in the narrative that, you're that we're dealing with. Uh, but then specific to Israel and what is taking place from the time that Moses comes back and begins to negotiate that deal for them to leave, uh, we're talking about two years. A year prior to their leaving and about a year afterwards because they were at the base of Sinai for a year and we find that when we get to the end of Exodus, the last piece of that is, is that the tabernacle is built uh, and consecrated. Uh, so we're really looking at about a two-year period with most of what we're talking about. So I think we can talk about two years worth of life maybe in uh, uh, in 12 weeks, uh, maybe we can.
But I wanted to point us to that just so that we have some idea of what's going on there. I want you to know the significance of the Exodus for us. Okay? It was for us. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians. This is just a little bit of background for us to understand the significance here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Paul writes, for I, beginning in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's talking about following the cloud, passing through the Red Sea, okay? And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now I want you to hear that. The rock was Christ. Now you may, uh, you may have wondered, we've been singing about Christ today, but we're getting ready to go to the Old Testament. We're looking at Exodus. Oh no, the Exodus is about Christ. That's what the Exodus is about. And that's what Paul is trying to help uh, the Corinthians to understand and to recognize. And then he goes on and says this, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, uh, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these, took, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then look down in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. Okay? An example for us. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages would come. Hear that again. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, uh, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed uh, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He'll also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Uh, I want you to hear uh, enduring and escaping. We're talking about deliverance. The exodus took place for us. It was written down for our instruction to point us to Christ. That's the purpose of the Exodus. So as we're looking at this Old Testament book, understand it is being interpreted in the New Testament, the same Holy Spirit that gave the words to Moses and the same God that directed all those experiences and the Holy Spirit of God who gave it to Moses to write down, Moses was writing it down according to the Holy Spirit through Paul was writing it down for our instruction, post-resurrection instruction, to point to Christ. So what they were dealing with was Christ. What we are dealing with is Christ. And Adam, thank you for pointing us back to that just a moment ago and 
helping us recall the hymn that we just sang and may have been you may have never sung that hymn too by the way or it may have been a long time since you have sung that hymn but not now you we sang it this morning but in pointing us to see and to look to Christ uh, for everything let's read our text today Exodus chapter 1 and then we'll be looking at the last few verses of chapter 2. And I'm going to make a few comments this morning. I wanted us to look at the background of Exodus. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now, for those who haven't been with us, uh, we, uh, we work through Genesis. Okay? So uh, just real quick before we read this piece, be reminded of how these sons of Israel, Jacob's sons, how they wound up in Egypt. Okay? Remember, uh, God cut his covenant with Abraham. We just read part of that. That covenant was, is that I'm going to give you land and I'm going to give you a family. And that family came from the one son, Isaac, who also received that same blessing and took on and received that same covenant blessing that was established between God and his earthly father, Abraham. And then Isaac married Rebekah, and he and Rebekah had two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. Uh, if you're interested, we won't look at that now, but you can look at the story behind the story uh, in Romans chapter 9 when you read through that and understand that Esau was the oldest and should have received the birthright and the blessing. We know that Jacob received the birthright and the blessing. And humanly speaking, when we're reading that in Genesis, uh, he gains that through his own deceptive means. Uh, but we realize that it was God's intent, not condoning his sin, but it was God's intent for him to receive the blessing and the birthright and that promise, that covenant promise would go through Jacob. Well, Jacob being the deceiver that he was, what goes around comes around most of the time, uh, had an uncle uh, that was uh, a little bit foxier than he was. So when Jacob... Uh, after he had deceived his brother Esau and was afraid that Esau was going to retaliate, he leaves and goes back to his mother's homeland and actually goes and lives with his mother's brother, Laban. And there uh, he uh, saw this cousin of his uh, that he wanted to marry uh, and, uh, and, 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 and he wanted her and it was agreed upon with his uncle uh, but there was a bait and switch that took place on the wedding night. And when, uh, when Jacob woke up the next morning, it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't Rachel that he had, uh, but it was her older sister, Leah. And so he comes back to his uncle and says, Now, nah, this is not right. And he said, Well, you do what's right by her, and I'm going to give you Rachel too. And he did. And from the two of those those two sisters, and from their handmaids, Jacob 
had 12 sons. And those uh, are at least part of this group. One of those sons, the son that Rachel had, and he loved Rachel, Joseph, her son, uh, he loved more than he loved his other sons. Uh, and they were jealous. Uh, so much so that they plotted, if you remember, they plotted to get rid of the favored son. Uh, and in that plot, they wound up selling him to Egyptian slave buyers, and Joseph was taken to Egypt. And through the events there, in God's providence, he rose to be the second in command just under Pharaoh for the whole nation of Egypt. And it was there, through the providence of God and God working in him, that he developed a plan that would ultimately sustain Egypt and much of the rest of that world through a very serious crisis. It was a famine in the land. And it was from his planning, God giving him wisdom to do that, that Egypt was able to be saved. Other people in that region were able to be saved, uh, not the least of which was his own family that he had been estranged from for all those years. They come seeking food, uh, and he is able to save them. And so that brings us, that was the end of Genesis, okay? And then that brings us to this verse. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, uh, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Iskar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So what we just heard is the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham. Okay, Now let's see what happens in the course of this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. You know the favor that we find with people today. Uh, those people do not stay in power. Uh, and there comes a time in the course of our life or in our, our progeny's life that we are not known anymore. And that favor goes away. And that's what he's pointing to. Uh, there was a Pharaoh, a king who knew not Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. In other words, they are posing or will pose a threat to us and our ethnicity and our culture and our way of life because they are outnumbering us. They felt this threat. Now, whether they were, we know that they were a great people. We know that there were uh, probably close to a million of them, of all the children and all the ones that left out in that exodus. But, but they, they, they were seen as a threat in much the same way as even, even 
here in, in mostly white America feel threatened by other ethnic groups. That's what's going on here. Okay? Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, uh, Python, Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. God's blessing upon them. Okay? Make, make note of that. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so that they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service, and mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, they're still growing, okay? They're a threat. We've got to get rid of them. We've got, to, we've got to decrease their number. We've got to manage the population. We've got to have population control here. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom's name was uh, Shephara and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, which was nothing more than two rocks, mind you, that the Hebrew women would crouch over when they were getting ready to give birth. That's, that's what he's talking about here. When you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, but Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people... Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you'll let every daughter live. That was his means of dealing with them. So he turns it away from the midwives, and then he just tells his people, when you see a Hebrew child born, if it is a male, you take him and you throw him into the Nile. Commands the whole, the whole population to do that. Look at verse 23 of chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. And God knew. Let's pray together. 
Father, in these next few minutes, uh, would you cause the reality of what we have just heard, read, to be driven deep into the crevices of our soul and our mind so that we would understand what you are saying about us and what you are saying about you. Show us what we cannot do and help us to see what only you can do. And it's only appropriate that we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. By and large, we are going to revisit these three things that I'm going to mention that we've just read about for the next 12 weeks. We're coming at them in all kinds of different ways. One, God is sovereign. Now, I know you hear us say that all the time. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. What do we mean when we say that God is sovereign? Simply that God is the one who creates he plans, He orchestrates, He rules. Whatever happens, happens under the context of His authority. There is no other sovereign. Our nation is not a sovereign in that sense. As sinners, we seek to be our own sovereign to be our own ruler, as Adam pointed to. We seek to look to ourselves for our answers. Much of what is taught today, uh, even in churches, is self-help, that somehow you are your sovereign, you are in control of you, you determine the outcome of your life, and that is not true. That is not true. I'm not here today to say that you don't make decisions. We all make decisions. But at the end of the day, God is at work and in control of all things and has planned all things. One of the reasons why we look back at Genesis chapter 15 earlier is that even when he was striking his covenant with Abraham, he said, your family, your progeny that I'm going to give you, they are going to dwell in a land that is not theirs. Not talking about the promised land, that was their land. He was giving them that land. But they were going to dwell in a land that was not theirs, and they would be enslaved, ruled over, if you will, for a period of 400 years. And it was all a part of the plan of God that we have already seen. Listen, we have already seen the Holy Spirit as He spoke to the Apostle Paul to give the word to the Corinthians that all of that was for us and our instruction. So, how does all this work? Well, we just read. They are enslaved. They're there for 400 years. They have been beaten down. They have been oppressed. And yet they continue to multiply. They continue to grow because that is exactly what God intended to happen. And in a lot of ways, what you see happening with Israel is mirrored again in the church because the church, the believers, are God's people. And even when we are persecuted, when we are oppressed, when we are beaten down, we will continue to multiply. We will continue to multiply. 
according to how God has determined for us to multiply. So you say, Jimmy, are you worried about Oak Valley Church growing? Oak Valley Church will grow numerically based upon what God has determined for Oak Valley Church to do numerically. No, I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried about it. Uh, In the midst of our struggles, in the midst of being oppressed, if that comes about, and I believe will be in due time, uh, we will continue to see people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ if we are faithful in preaching and teaching the gospel. It won't happen apart from that by God's design. But as we are faithful to preach and teach the gospel and point people to Christ and Christ alone and grow, because God has intended that to happen just like He intended Israel to be there in Egypt under taskmasters, beaten down, and yet they continue to multiply because He has a purpose for them And ultimately in that purpose, it is to instruct us, to help us to see and to understand this thing of the Exodus. Real historical event, but has implications far beyond Charlton Heston leading a group of people out and and what we understand and see is the Ten Commandments. It's more than that. It's more than that. God is sovereign. He's sovereign. He has all power and He rules and He reigns and there is no one that is going to stand against Him. We will see as we work through Exodus that there is this world leader who believes in his mind that he is going to stand opposed to God. Uh, He represents evil because he is. He represents Satan uh, because he is driven and ruled by him. He's going to stand against God. And yet, God gives us the picture again in that, and we'll see it when we get there, that no one is going to stand against him. Now, I want you to hold on to this for just a minute. Because if you're here and you haven't trusted Christ, you're trying to be a sovereign, uh, even if you don't see yourself with power, You're trying to be a sovereign, and you're trying to push against God. And I will tell you today that you will be crushed under the wrath of God if you seek to push against God. You're not going to win there. You're not going to win there. Our young folks here, listen. For those of you who haven't trusted Christ, this is a spiritual battle And though you may not see yourself as being rebellious and pushing away from God in due time, hopefully you will. But I want you to know that you will not win a battle with God. Because He is sovereign. Pharaoh and all of his armies could. And you won't. Nor will I. The United States will not. All of the world powers will not. All of them mounted together, we see, when we get to the book of Revelation, will mount forces against Him with the intent of destroying God. But that will not happen. And that's exactly what God wants us to see here. There's a sovereign God with all power. With all power. 
The next thing that I want us to pay attention to in this text that we've just read is that there is a suffering people. There is a suffering, miserable people. Now I want you to know that Israel's suffering here, as far as we can tell, has not been brought about upon them by anything that they have done other than in God's sovereignty, He realizes that this is again instruction for us to see and to understand the true nature of being in bondage and enslaved to sin. This is a very real bondage that they're under. But it is to point us to see the very real bondage that we are in our fallen natures in sin. That's the reason we read from John chapter 8 this morning. Even the Jews then were in denial about the fact that they had ever been in bondage. Even something that stood in the background of their history, the very thing that they talk about today. I don't know if you've ever, I've listened to some of the interviews at different times uh, with some of the Jewish leaders. They still talk about their deliverance from Egypt and being given that land by God. They don't trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not their Messiah, but they have not forgotten the historical reality of what took place when their people were taken from Egypt and they were given that land and they say, God gave us this land. This is our land. And you know what? They're not wrong. They're not wrong. But the point is, is that when Jesus was talking with these Jews, they said, oh, we're children of Abraham. We've never been in bondage. And I don't know if Jesus scratched his head or not, but I would have scratched my head at that point in time and said, um, you're forgetting a very important part of history. It was 400 years that you were in bondage. At least part of that time, 200 for sure, that you were in bondage and you were enslaved to another nation. And God sent a deliverer and delivered you. And he's saying, now you are denying that at the same time that you're denying your own bondage to sin. And here, a better Moses, one greater than Moses, is here standing before you to deliver you. It's hard to be delivered if you're not acknowledging that you need to be delivered. Won't be delivered when you don't acknowledge that you need to be delivered. Listen today. The first step in being delivered from sin is to acknowledge, I'm a sinner and I need to be delivered. My life is a mess. It needs to be rightly ordered. I am crushed under the weight of this and I can't do anything about it. I am unsuccessful in bringing myself out of this. That's, that's what's being said here. Notice what they do. Chapter 2, we read it, but look at it again. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They couldn't get out from under it. They saw no hope. They saw no way. They groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Are they crying to God? I'm not sure. 
But it says their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Look at that. Came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. And God knew. What is it that God knows? Well, He knows you and He knows me. He knows your heart. He knows your heart. You know what is this thing of being in bondage and in, in misery? Is that even people of faith continue to need salvation. Why? We continue to struggle with sin. We can't hide it. If we deny it, we're lying to ourselves. The reason we confess sin here every week. Not just in general. I sit there week after week. Holy Spirit directs things to my and to me. And, and by the way, I selected the verses and didn't see it when I was selecting it. And sit here and by the power of God, and I'm thankful for it. He directs that text to my heart in a way that I never saw it, and I am convicted of sin. Why? Because I, I struggle with it. You struggle with it. We need the, the continued work of salvation. The Deliverer doesn't just deliver us and then drop us off over here somewhere. The Deliverer, Jesus Christ, continues to deliver. Constantly delivering us. Constantly delivering us until the time that we enter the promised land and see Him face to face. And then we will no longer be bothered with temptation uh, and with sin. The exodus is to point us to the fact we need to be delivered and the deliverer is always delivering because it always needs, needs to be delivering. Something else here in this text, and that is, is that God has methods of saving God's method of dealing with the human race generally outside of Israel was, is kind of by creating a, 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 helping us see Israel. God created the nation of Israel so he could demonstrate through Israel uh, for all other nations and people to see how glorious it is to live in the presence of God. That was Israel's purpose. He was showing them as to be a holy people and what it meant and what it means to follow God. And then his method in dealing with Israel is just to come to them because he cares for them because they are a covenant people. Notice again in chapter 2 there, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. Our second week in our Advent series, we said that all of God's promises were yes and amen in Christ. 
Remember that? You know, that came from Paul's writing to the Corinthians as well. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. All of God's promises to Abraham were yes and amen in Christ. And all of God's promises are yes and amen to us in Christ. Why? Because there is a God who hears our cry for rescue and deliverance if we cry out to Him. He hears us and He cares and He sees us and He knows us. It's interesting here and we'll track along through this, but it's interesting here, even in this text, that God has, for the most part, for two or three hundred years, has been relatively silent. In other words, we know when Jacob brings his sons in, Jacob is still holding on to that covenant promise. He hasn't forgotten it. Remember, he's still limping because of, of his connection with and wrestling with God. He's still limping. He hadn't forgotten it. That limp never went away. He never forgot that. He has spoken in his blessings to his son and in passing on what it is to follow God. Somewhere in the course of that, Certainly, they had lost that, not entirely, because we do recognize that the midwives had not forgotten who God is, but what we do know is, is that there is not a constant presence with God. That doesn't come until we get to the tabernacle. That doesn't come until the glory of God descends upon the tabernacle. They're not in the presence of that glory and are able to identify with it until that pillar of fire and that cloud is before them. They're not aware of just how wonderful and magnificent this glory is until they get to Sinai and the, and the actual, that the mountain itself is trembling and the smoke of His presence is covered over it and there is lightning flashing down. But then they begin to understand that what they have been lacking is the presence of God. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. I was reminded of this. We've been, you've been working through Luke's gospel too, and we have. Uh, some of you may remember what takes place here. It's recorded in Luke 9. Look at verse 28. Now about eight, eight days after these sayings, he took with him, speaking Jesus, speaking of Jesus, he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, speaking of Jesus, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Now I want you to hear this, spoke of his departure. That word in the Greek is spoke of his exodus, which he was about to, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. His exodus that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem, this work. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. 
But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, uh, it's good that we're here. Uh, Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent, told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Why do we read this text? Because Jesus was getting ready to exodus. And his exodus was going to be the final complete exodus that would deliver into the presence of God, ultimately enter into the presence of God, that people that was being delivered, pointing to his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his exodus and departure. Brian reminded us when we were teaching this and going through this is that they were, they were foolish. The disciples were foolish in even thinking that he needed to stay. Oh, no, he couldn't stay. He couldn't stay. Uh, any more so than Israel was going to stay in Egypt. He wasn't going to stay. He couldn't stay because there was a deliverance that had to be according to what God had said. There was a deliverance that had to take place. That's the significance of Exodus. And it is a God who sees us, knows us, hears those who cry for deliverance. And we appeal to you today that if you've not trusted Christ, cry out to Him and ask Him to deliver you and to set you free. And believers understand that we continue to need the saving work of God in us to bring us to a place that we can stand before Him. And we need to be mindful of that. We'll see two things as we work our way through Exodus. We will see the presence of God, but there will be two things that will be so different for Israel and is different for us. And ladies, y'all hold on to this as well because you're getting ready to encounter one of these in a big way in 1 John. There is the obedience to Him, loving obedience to Him, and then there is the open worship of Him. And so much of Exodus points us to those two things, obedience and worship. I make note of that because our response to a sovereign God who cares and sees and knows, our responses are obedience and worship. Will you pray with me? Father, as we have started, already we feel, sense, are coming to understand the gravity and the weight
of knowing that we, every one of us, are in bondage and struggle if we have not yet been set free. And even for those of us who have been set free from the judgment of sin, we have not yet fully been set free from the power of sin in our life, but we want to. We want that God. Father, will You help us over the course of these next 12 weeks to realize the weight of sin and its heaviness and its destruction. And then, Father, would You help us to see the joy and to know the joy and realize that joy of being able to be brought into Your presence and having Your presence and having Your Spirit in us. And that it would not be a dread. And it wouldn't be something, Father, that we maybe continue to deal with in, a, in, in an apathetic, non-caring way. But that our hearts would be so entwined, so drawn by Your Spirit, that our lives consciously be lived understanding that we are in your presence holy and a good and a saving God we thank you today Father that you hear us you know us you've not left us alone you have visited us with Christ your spirit even now speaking to the hearts of some who are here Father, do your work there. We trust in you for it in Christ's name. Amen.